Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us for our latest crime podcast. In the early 1980s, during the height of the dirty war that was raging in Argentina, the tranquility of the residential neighborhood of San Isidro in Buenos Aires was shattered by a major event. The inhabitants of a sumptuous villa were all arrested. But how could this happen? The Puccios were such kind parents and had such perfect children. This marked the beginning of a particularly strange and sordid tale. How could these respectable people, who were known and admired by the whole neighborhood, have turned overnight into bloodthirsty monsters? In a particularly turbulent and difficult political context that was marked by internal conflicts, purges and kidnappings, the story of the Puccia family would make the headlines. For the rest of the world, they would become to known as the L clan, the clan. August 23, 1985. Somewhere in San Isidro. No one has come to empty the latrine in two days now. That's rather strange. Usually there's always someone. Nalida Bolini de Prado was sitting on the cot that they had served as her bedroom for more than a month now. The odor from her own excrement, which was made worse by the cramped conditions of the overheated and underventilated room, she kept her hands over her nostrils. A futile effort, because as soon as she let her aching arm fall, the disgusting smell seeped through her nose again. She hadn't even taken a single bath since the beginning of this nightmare and her skin was starting to itch. The memory of her bathroom with its fine porcelain skin, soap bottles and neatly ironed towels brought a lump to her throat. But she couldn't allow herself to cry. How much longer would she have to remain here? A week? A month? A year? Or ten years? Nelita shuddered at the thought of that last. Huge number especially considering that every hour spent in captivity seemed to last an eternity. My children must already be aware. No, no, I have to hold on. One more try. Don't let it get you down. Just like anyone else who had been taken hostage, Nalita had gotten into the habit of talking out loud to herself, acting as both speaker and listener. However, it was not something she did at night because when the lights went out, it plunged the room into total darkness that was so sinister that it petrified and paralyzed her. The same questions tormented her and kept her from sleeping. Why am I here? How long will this last? Does anyone even know that I'm here? Will someone kill me in my sleep with a bullet to my brain? The first day she arrived in this underground prison cell, a hooded man pushed her down into the same cot without saying a word. He returned later that evening, loaded down with a tray of American food, fried chicken wings and a cheeseburger, before walking away and locking the door. He handed her a pill and a glass of water. Here, this will help you sleep. But what is it? Don't argue. He remained standing there to make sure she swallowed the whole pill and drank the glass of water. But she could not sleep that night. Every day, it was the same drill. A hooded man would enter her prison cell twice a day to serve her morning and evening meals. Knowing that she would have to use the bathroom, they brought her a garbage bin lined with the plastic to use as a toilet. Over the next few days, the person who brought her meals would also take away the garbage can to empty it. But for the past two days, no one had come around. 
No longer did she hear the radio blaring advertisements for powdered milk or the broadcast of the daily radio soap opera, which had been the only proof that life still continued beyond the dripping walls of this disgusting room. And what if they've taken off? She wondered, trembling. Could this be the end? At the moment, the sound of a key turning in the locked door startled Nelita, who swiftly sat upright, forgetting the nauseating odor. Three men in police uniforms surrounded her, put a blanket around her shoulders, and escorted her out of this hole. She climbed the stairs, supported by the two officers, who repeated to her in unison, It's okay, it's okay, it's all over. She had been saved. She could scarcely believe it. Usually, she was a dignified, stylish woman, but now she pleaded with these young brown men in uniform. Don't look at me. I'm filthy. Don't look at me. It all happened very quickly. Nalita was able, for the first time, to see the faces of her jailers, as well as the immense size of the house, which was surrounded by police cars. The house was so large compared to the damp, dark den, where she whiled away the endless minutes and hours without any hope of seeing the light of day ever again. The ransom that was demanded in exchange for the life of the captive never arrived since it was delivered too late, a fact which also led to the downfall of her overzealous abductors who were eager to collect the money, not realizing that it would seal their fate. In the quiet, upscale neighborhood of San Isidro, amazement gave way to horror. Who would have suspected? Buenos Aires, three years earlier, 1982. The end justifies the means. Niccolo Machiavelli, it looked good just about the oak desk. In that position, it would be in full view and all the children, both the boys and girls, would see it. Like the overwhelming majority of white Argentinians, Archimedes Fernando Puccio was Italian and proud of it. Just the fact that he was able to find these famous proverbs and quotes written by his fellow countrymen from across the Atlantic in the 14th century was enough to fill him with pride. God had wanted the earth to be beautiful. He wanted noble ideas, art, colors, music, and magnificent buildings. So he decided it's time to create the Italian people. He had a heightened sense of chauvinism, which was shared by three generations of Italian immigrants living in Latin America. Archimedes looked one last time at the A4 paper stuck together with tape and then glanced at all his framed diplomas, which were aligned in chronological order of when they were received before heading down to his garden. There, he looked all around, grabbed his broom, and then started sweeping, calmly at first, and then frantically without stopping. In his neighborhood of San Isidro, he had been given the nickname the Crazy Sweeper, or sometimes Cuckoo, because he was always on the alert for the slightest noise and always had his head sticking out of his window. A neighbor accidentally dropped their lighter. Bam! Butchia's broom would sweep it up. Someone's handkerchief fell out of their pocket, or one of their buttons had come loose. Then the broom would come out in full force. The neighbors, having understood for a while now that it was pointless to try to get their items back, let them do whatever he wanted. At that time, OCD was still an unknown concept. In their opinion, Mr. Puccio was a bored retiree, a bit temperamental perhaps, but nevertheless full of good intentions. With his sweeping done, Puccio returned to his villa in search of another unusual hobby to pastime. Maybe he could cut out letters from the newspaper to make an anonymous note like in the movies. Yet this stocky man of 53, with snow-white hair, olive complexion, green, dry eyes, silent, secret, wasn't just anybody. He was born on September 14, 1921, in Buenos Aires, into a well-to-do family. The oldest of six children, his father Juan Puccio, was the press secretary for Chancellor Juan Atilio Bermuglia, 
and his mother Isabel Ordano was a painter by trade. His professional career coincided with the turbulent political climate of Argentina in the early 1960s. Archimedes, a fervent Catholic, vehemently opposed this new movement of bearded, long-haired men dressed in fatigues and talking about guerrilla warfare. As he waged war against all the socialist atheists, dreaming of seeing them rotting in a working camp in the desert or in Patagonia, his professional rise continued to be dazzling and rapid. At times, he worked as an accountant, lawyer, businessman, and most importantly, an eminent member of the anti-communist alliance. A graduate of a prestigious business school, he held a position of a diploma to the Minister of Foreign Affairs and Culture, more commonly known by the initials MRECIC. When he was younger, Puccio had also been a member of the Justalista political movement for which he had carried out several diplomatic missions by mail to Madrid. Was there anything that Puccio couldn't do? But what very few people knew, and certainly not the neighbors, who ran into him with his broom, he was also a member of the Battalion de Intelligencia, 601, and the Extreme Right Terrorist Group AAA, an Argentinian Army Information Unit that was active during the dictatorship and who resorted to kidnapping and using force and intimidation to achieve its goals. In the late 1960s, retired Puccio declared himself to be a gentleman of leisure. He moved with his wife and children into a charming villa purchased in the upscale neighborhood of San Isidore in Buenos Aires and made himself appear as discreet and average as possible. With his wife Epiphania Cavlo, a math teacher and accountant whom he married in 1957, he had five children, two girls, three boys, Alejandro, Guillermo, Daniel Miguela, Silvia, and Adriana, who were all grown up at the time of the events. For all the people who visited them from near or far, the Buccios made a close-knit and respectable family, good by all accounts and devoted people who went to church every Sunday, a father who always wore a tie and a mother who always in her Sunday best, who had obedient children with an old-fashioned education. That was the image that they projected. With his pension, Archimedes, who only swore by hard work, opened a rotisserie that he named Los Naranjas. The business was located downstairs from the family home and was regularly visited by the members of the local football team, the Casi. They came there to eat copias asadas, a gigantic Argentinian barbecue, after their training with ham sandwiches, parmigiana, and ice cream. For the young, rowdy footballers, Mr. Puccio was a quite old man, crabby, intelligent, who liked to hear them talk without giving his own personal opinion. Unlike her husband Epiphania Puccio, 53 was a pleasant, friendly woman who was close to her neighbors and quite involved in the life of her community and her parish. It wasn't rare to see her at the midnight mass or at dawn praying with the crucifix. In their villa, surrounded by gigantic banana trees and driveways decorated with aloe vera and red sebo trees, the family led a life orchestrated like a musical score by the head of the household. Every Sunday, the husband, wife, and children went to church in procession. The parents and the two youngest daughters in their car, the boys on their bicycles. Everyone marveled at their beauty, their good education, and many held them up as examples. Here are some children who still obey their parents. That's rare these days. But behind the wall of their imposing homes, things were different. When Epiphania married Archimedes in 1957, the happy married life was short-lived and soon she fell under the yoke of this cold, prudish, complicated husband with a calculating mind who liked to dominate and manage his work while preserving a polished image to the outside world. Epiphania never allowed her unhappiness to show. The children imitated their mother because no one dared to stand up to their dominant father whose cynicism was much more lethal than the loudest of outbursts. 
Within the country, all the news stories on television revolved around the end of the conflict in the Falklands, which had claimed the lives of thousands of Argentinian soldiers to whom everyone owed a debt of gratitude. Black veils hung on the doors of most houses, which was an obvious sign of mourning. Even those who did not have children in the military still sympathized. A child of the homeland belonged to everybody, and the unhappiness of their parents was shared by all. The general atmosphere was stressful. Poverty had become the daily lot of a larger segment of the population. Newspapers were censored, and eager reporters were sent into obscurity. In neighboring countries like Chile, Brazil, and Uruguay, it was the same thing. Head fell, dictators emerged from thin air, and became kinglets reigning despotically in their countries. Above all, it was a period that was marked by the dreadful phenomenon of kidnappings. Papa, if he only knew, they ran always like rabbits with their tails between their legs. They bite the dust. Zori, you must never shout victory too soon. Remember that. In the Los Naranjos canteen, the smell of sautéed meat and fried eggs and potatoes overwhelmed the space. The ventilators made a deafening noise. Alejandro had promised to fix it, but he was so obsessed with rugby that he sometimes even forgot to brush his teeth or take off his shoes to go to bed. Alejandro, sometimes called Zori, brushed away a lock of his impressive man of black hair as he stared at his father busily putting straws into soda bottles. Maybe you could get over here and give me a hand instead of strutting around. Papa, we won. Don't we have a right to celebrate? You're crazy. The country is in mourning. Our brave soldiers have fallen to the Falklands. And you want to celebrate the victory of some little game between friends? Alejandro suppressed his pride and without saying a word, went behind the counter. His father gestured at him to get the forks out of a drawer and put them to the paper plates. Silence fell like lead. I have a mission for you, Archimedes said calmly. With the ventilator? I promised you that I was going to fix it. His father shook his head in the negative. I'm telling you about it when the time is right. Here's some customers have arrived. Take this carafe and go fill it with iced tea. That evening on television, General Leopoldo Glatieri, dressed in his military uniform adorned with medals, his expression somber, addressed the nation. Now we have much more than memories of our former victories. We also have our current flesh-and-blood heroes. The next day, dressed in his finery, Archimedes Puccio went to a meeting of the Argentinian Anti-Communist Alliance. After having made a toast to the martyrs from recent events, the elders all met up to share a meal, kind of a late savory breakfast. For the first time in quite a while, Puccio saw his old friends again. Luis Fernandez Laborda, an administrator at the Ramos Mejia Hospital, and Colonel Rodolfo Franco, a former highly experienced soldier who became a businessman. The three friends went off to another room to talk. In this partitioned room, the stench of old tobacco mixed with Luis Laborda's heavy cologne gave Puccio a headache. I have a mission of extreme importance for you to do. That same evening, Puccio repeated every word of the conversation that occurred in the office to his family as they gathered around the dinner table. Resources have been fairly divided. We have some cleaning up to do. I don't want any of you to die in service. Only the children of poor people become soldiers. As his puzzled family looked on, the old man revealed his plan. It targeted the elites of Buenos Aires, the landowners, the tycoons and the hares, the sons of the famous men and the business leaders and the matrons and furs. The idea was to kidnap people, scare them a bit and then let them go while collecting the money. Puccio discussed the matter as if he were talking about planning a picnic at the seashore, with all the calm and composure that he was known for. To avoid taking any unnecessary risks, he decided to go after potential victims that he already knew well. 
Puccio and his sons knew that the elites were already associated with them. Some were Puccio's former colleagues and business partners. Some were acquaintances of his sons who played sports together or friends from the archery club. Inside their Volkswagen van, Puccio and the eldest from Buenos Aires as night fell. The father had already come up with a list of prestigious names, those who reeked of caviar and champagne. On the night of July 30, 1982, Ricardo Manoquian climbed into his car to go to a gala charity bowl organized by the club where he was a member, 24 years old from a good Armenian family, who had been established in Argentina for three generations. He owned, among other things, the tanny chain of supermarkets. He was a frail and nervous young man. Recently, his family suffered a tragedy. One of his uncles had been kidnapped and murdered by a gang of corrupt police officers. Since then, the Manukians had hired bodyguards to accompany them when they went out, day or night. As he left the house that night without an escort, Ricardo was playing with fire. But he was ready for anything. His convertible was designed to withstand any attack or kidnapping attempt. It was equipped with sirens that would be triggered at the slightest movement. The night before Ricardo had met with Alejandro Puccio, good old Zori with his unkempt hair, always the rebel, was a friend from high school. They met at the club just to talk about the good old days. Suddenly, two hooded men rushed to him and literally threw him into the van. Manokian was taken to the San Isidro Villa, where he was held captive in the bathroom on the first floor for 11 days with a hand and feet bound and a hood over his head. Epiphania Puccio was responsible for bringing him his meals. The next day, his parents received an anonymous letter with a ransom request of $500,000. However, Ricardo was not released because his kidnappers were still seeking an additional $300,000. Shot to death with three bullets to the head, his body was then thrown into a river on the outskirts of Buenos Aires named Escobar Partido. When he got back to his room 2 a.m., Alejandro vomited. Over the next two months, Puccio built a kind of bunker in his basement a makeshift room that was sectioned off and had no windows and could only be reached by going through a maze of underground corridors. This hiding place was much more inconspicuous than the bathroom of a house that was out in the open for all to see. This was now the place for all their future victims. In January 1983, Eduardo Alet, 25, an industrial engineer who had become a businessman, sat down at the Las Naranas canteen. Puccio, standing behind the counter, sent his son to meet him. They had known each other briefly since Olet was also a member of the rugby team. Alejandro offered him a beer and they chatted, laughed and promised to see each other again. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Again, two days later, while he was on his way to work, Olet was abducted by the Puccia family and taken to the villa. 
His family paid a ransom of $150,000 without knowing that he was already dead. Before he was murdered, the gang forced him to write a goodbye letter to his wife, Rogella Posey, whom he had married only a few days before he was kidnapped. Breaking in the rest of the family, in particular the mother, the two daughters and two other boys, who were all powerless witnesses to the torture, did not go smoothly. As a devout Catholic, Epiphania rebelled against her husband, but he put her back in her place as he whispered in her ears. If the police ever find out what I'm doing, I won't be the only one going to prison with Alejandro. You will too, as my accomplice. Is that what you want? Now, rich from all the ransom money and protected by the Battaglia 601, Puccio continued his despicable rise in organized crime, void of all conscience and pity. Besides his children, he was also assisted by friends Luis Fernandez Laborda, Colonel Franco, and an accountant named Rovelta, who became permanent members of this band of criminals. A maniac sweeper by day and a murderer by night, Puccio carefully balanced his two very distinctive lives, keeping both compartmentalized. In the immediate neighborhood, the work that he was doing to build the bunker in the basement did not seem to raise any questions. I'm in the process of setting up my workshop for my Amazonian butterfly collection, so I can't sweep the neighborhood anymore. We'll have to find another way to take care of things, Puccio cynically joked with the neighbors. Without a doubt, the family had turned their home into a hostage prison. Trained by their father, brothers Alejandro, Daniel, and Guleremo had now become jailers who never hesitated to inflict torture. Defined hostages were treated to radio torture, which meant playing it very loudly and repeatedly in front of their cells 24 hours a day. While Alejandro, the black sheep and rebel of the family, was usually sent out with Luis Laborda to look out for victims. The two other brothers were responsible for keeping guard, bringing meals to their captives and letting the radio play non-stop if they revolted. But Puccio still had more surprises in store when Guilleremo, his favorite son, ran away from home one day to Australia. Within his family, that now had been transformed into a gang, the rules of living had been turned upside down. In the evenings, in their rooms, Epiphania and her daughters put their fears down on paper. They described the stressful climate at home and the arguments and the favoritism for some children to determine of others. The subjugation, the cruelty, the parents' unhappy marriage, and Puccio's double life. With his father's money, Alejandro opened a sporting goods store called Hobby Win, and it soon became successful. He met kindergarten teacher Monica, whom he planned to marry and have lots of children, at least ten, he said proudly. His fiancée was unaware of all his machinations and illicit activities that he engaged in with his father and his accomplices. In 1984, Puccio hired a bricklayer, Herculiano Vilca, and a mechanic Roberto Diaz to assist him during the abductions. That was also the year when Guilleremo returned home after his escape to Australia. His father took him aside and told him, Alejandro helps me with the business, but it's hard for him to learn, so he's slow. I want us all to be together because the family is the most important thing in the world. Under his father's control, the sensitive Guillermo, his eyes full of tears, simply nodded his head. Puccio held his son's face in his hands and said to him unflinchingly, You need to get this into your head once and for all. This isn't Australia. Everything here is a mess and you need to know how to take advantage of it. Remember that there are a lot of people here who are filthy rich. I hope you can read between the lines. Only one week after he had returned, the young man was sent with Luis Laborda and the bricklayer to kidnap someone called Emilia Noom. Emilia Noom was a business executive and owned a chain of stores called McTaylor. The gang attempted to kidnap him while he was driving his car. The plan was for Guillermo to get his attention by asking for his help. 
while on the side of the road to change the flat tire on his Volkswagen van. Noam fell for the trap, but still put up a fight. Laborda then took out his revolver and shot him four times right there in the abdomen and head. His body was thrown into a landfill just outside the town. The family continued to live out their charade during the day. Alejandro loved dogs and dreamt of adopting one, but his father would not allow it. He was uncomfortable with the idea of being supervised by a dog's sense of smell. It was a definite no, but his son did share the same view. One day, with his friends, he spotted a lost bulldog. Alejandro jumped at the chance and took the dog home. Too bad the old man would have to get used to it. A few days later, when he came home, he found his father with his hand bloodied and bandaged. The dog bit your little sister. I had to get involved. I killed it. He told his son without batting an eye. The bulldog had actually been shot three times in the mouth. Puccio put the corpse in a vegetable bin and took it down to the basement. While Puccio may have been a center of the family, the sun around which all the galaxies danced, his wife Epiphania was much more mysterious and withdrawn. She was obsessed with her weight and almost cult-like devotion to being thin. She weighed herself morning and night and noted it in a special diary. Today I gained 300 grams. That's enormous. From now on, no milk jam. No more fries, no more bread with meals. Sylvia, the second youngest, was another secretive person in the family. Having been raised in fear of mortal sins and punishment, she lived like a recluse in a room and only went to school and church. She had a friend and confidence, Sister Cecilia de Morgazzo, to whom she revealed everything about her dysfunctional family life. Papa and Mama haven't spoken to each other in two weeks now. I don't think they love each other anymore, but for Papa, the important thing is for us to stay together. None of us must ever leave. In 1982, just after the abduction of Ricardo Marocchian, Sylvia told a nun, For now, things are going quite well for Papa. Soon there will be new opportunities for everyone, provided they do well and remain patient. Puccio disciplined his children with an iron fist. The boys, especially Alejandro and Daniel, had to work in the rotisserie while the others continued to go to school. He refused to give them time off and got angry when they dared to ask for any. In his office, he continued his obsessive habit of finding famous coats for him to put up on the wall. Success and failure do not depend on what we lack, but on the way we use what we have. The laws does not punish thieves except when they do it badly. On August 22, 1985, Puccio and his family got together after dinner to tell them about the next victim on the list. Her name was Nelida Bellini de Prado, 58, a well-known businesswoman in Buenos Aires who owned several shops in the Avenida Independencia as well as a Tito Y. Oscar car dealership and a funeral home. A rich widow, mother of four and already a grandmother. She was a target that was too good to pass. She was also the gang's first female victim. The 50-something was abducted in broad daylight from her car when she was driving. They blindfolded her and tied her feet and hands. Then, they brought her down into the bunker lined with newspaper. They put me in a small room, tied me with chains and gave me sedatives. I could always hear two men's voices, but I never saw their faces because they were always wearing hoods. They threatened to kill my whole family if the police ever found out that I was being held. Nalita's life as a prisoner found her confined in a cramped bedroom. She lost all her sense of time as her watch and all other jewelry had been taken away. Not allowing hostages to know the time was a technique used to get them to become disoriented. Once a day, the businesswoman would be startled from her sleep by someone who would come to empty the trash can that also served as her toilet. In terms of food, she was allowed to have hamburgers and chicken with rice that Puccio had made earlier in the rotisserie. 
The radio was often turned on and played at a deafening volume. Once when she yelled just a bit too loudly, Nelida was deprived of food and water for a week. I was always afraid that one of them would come to kill me one morning, put me in a bag, and throw me away somewhere no one would ever find my body. While Bellini was being held captive in Puccio's basement, Puccio put a new code in his office. Do good without expecting anything in return. That was quite ironic considering how he was holding a woman hostage who had never done anything to him that he had threatened to kill her children in an anonymous letter. In the meantime, her family was able to come up with the sum of $800,000 and ask the kidnappers for a bit more time. I'm giving you 48 hours. No more, no less, said Alejandro on the telephone, his voice disguised with a pocket handkerchief. His father, standing next to him, listened to the whole exchange and nodded approvingly. Then, on the night of August 23, 1985, the calm of the peaceful old neighborhood of San Isidro was shattered by the sudden arrival of several police cars and dogs and leashes barking viciously. Buccia Villa was flooded by beams of light. One hour later, 40 members of the police caught the leader of the most wanted gang in Argentina. Archimedes Buccio was captured with his son Guillermo at a service station. The police had surprised him as he was dialing the number of the widow Bellini's eldest son to claim the remainder of the ransom, $200,000. Surrounded in every direction, the patriarch with the white hair and severe expression surrendered, announcing, The house is full of dynamite. If you go inside, it'll blow up. Guillermo, whose nerves were much more fragile, couldn't bear it and ended up confessing. She's in the basement of her old house. The widow Bellini's captivity lasted 32 days during which she had been tied to a cot in an unventilated basement, forced to use a plastic bag to take off her bodily functions and shot full of sedatives to keep her from screaming. When the police entered the house, they found Alejandro watching a movie with his fiancée Monica. The couple was violently thrown against a wall and put in handcuffs. I'm innocent. It's my father who thought the whole thing up. He's the one you should be arresting. The Puccio family's spectacular arrest did not go unnoticed in the neighborhood. Some of the neighbors even intervened with the police on the family's behalf. This is a mistake. You're wrong. We know all these people. They're a respectable family. You're making a mistake. At the police station, Puccio claimed his innocence in a cold, confident tone, stating that he was a patriot and an honest citizen. His wife, Epiphania, and his daughter, Sylvia and Adriana, were in a state of shock. By way of confession, she said, My husband, Papa, hasn't done anything. Over the next few days, older acquaintances were tracked down and questioned at length by the police. Alejandro's teammates had trouble believing he was guilty. Everyone came to his defense, claiming that he was unloved as a son and that he not only had a non-existent relationship with his father and also with his mother and brothers and sisters. His fiancée Monica also found it difficult to accept. Brutalized by the police at the time of Alejandro's arrest, she was considered a suspect for a short time before being cleared. She painted a rather unsavory portrait of the father, whom she had lived for three years describing him as an unpleasant, secretive man who had always denigrated her because of her modest background and her dark-skinned Indian mother. We don't want any half-breeds in the family. You're just a passing fling. Alejandro will marry a girl of our choice when the time is right. The trial for the clan began in December 1995. Amidst an overheated atmosphere, the courtroom at the Buenos Aires courthouse was overtaken by a swarm of reporters and other curiosity seekers. Outside, the crowd continued to jostle as they tried to get inside. Some were even hanging precariously from the windows. The Buccio family, including the father and the three sons, had been behind bars since 1985, awaiting their trial. 
As they entered the courtroom, they were immediately heckled and insulted by the audience. The verdict for Puccio was handed down on December 26, 1995. He was sentenced to life in prison. He was released for good behavior in 2008 after having spent 23 years and 8 months behind bars. He was then taken to a correctional institution, a rehabilitation center for former criminals nearing the end of life. Puccio spent the final years of his existence there, where he converted to evangelicalism. Later on, he moved into another house with a young woman he had met at the center, with whom he had begun a relationship. He died at the age 84 following a stroke. His body was never claimed by his children or his wife, and his remains were buried in a common grave at General Pico in the Pampa. His long-suffering wife Epiphania Puccio only spent two years behind bars at the Isaria prison for women. Today at the age 86, she lives in San Telmo. The neighbors always see her leaving her apartment early in the morning to do her shopping. She no longer speaks to anyone, and she refused to grant any interviews on the subject. During the trial in 1995, she denied knowing about her husband's illicit activities and said that she never had the ransom money that Puccio deposited in a separate bank account. Sylvia, the couple's devout daughter, got married and had two children. She never saw her father again or spoke to him since his arrest. She died in 2011 from uterine cancer. Daniel Puccio was arrested in August 1985 at the same time as the rest of the family. He spent four years in prison before being released in 1988. He received a reduced sentence for having spent two years without conviction for kidnapping and confinement of Nelida. Ten years later, he was sentenced to 13 years in prison, but he did not participate in his trial and fled. His years on the run between Argentina and Brazil remain a great mystery, and no one knows where he is currently. Throughout the trial, he denied everything, swearing that he had never kidnapped or tortured anyone. Yet after his release from prison, he wrote a letter of apology to the clan's final captive, Miss Bellini di Prado. It was a cowardly, senseless criminal behavior. I felt deep sadness for what happened. Sometimes we didn't know what we were doing, and that is why I'm begging you for forgiveness. I took part in these despicable acts without really knowing what I was doing. Today, at the age of 54, he moved with his mother in San Telmo. His personal life is shrouded in secrecy. All that is known is that he is unmarried, has no children, and is unemployed. Guillermo Puccio, his father's favorite son, had requested and was granted permission to change his family name as a way of ridding himself of this last vestige of shame. From then on, he began calling himself William Calvo. Later, he moved to Australia and never set foot in Argentina again. He now works in construction and is married with two children. Adriana, another of her father's favorites, followed her older brother's example and took on the surname of Calvo instead of Puccio. I knew everything, but I couldn't really understand what was going on, she said in reference to the abductions and murders during a television broadcast in Uruguay. Archimedes' accomplices, namely the hospital administrator Luis Fernandez Laborda, the mechanic Roberto Diaz, and the Colonel Rodolfo Franco, were all sentenced to life prison for kidnapping, torture, concealment of a corpse, organized crime, and criminal association. As for the bricklayer, Herculiano, he was sentenced to six years in prison. He was eventually released after having spent two years behind bars. The accountant named Revuelta, another of Puccio's henchmen, was acquitted due to a lack of evidence. Alejandro Puccio was tried at the same time as his father and was sentenced to life in prison. Upon his verdict, he broke down and while he was being transferred to his cell, he attempted to commit suicide by jumping, with his hands still shackled from the fifth floor of the courthouse of Buenos Aires before the police talked him out of it. 
He was admitted to the penitentiary hospital, where he spent the next three months recovering while he was in a cast. Afterwards, he found incarceration unbearable and made several suicide attempts. Released on parole in 2007, he died the following year at the age 49, while he was two days away from being admitted to a mental health care facility in Avellanada. In the aftermath of these tragic events, the Puccio family villa, the site of all these atrocities, was put up for sale by the city but never found a buyer. It was eventually confiscated as government property. For quite some time, Argentina had been plagued with abductions of its citizens. Between 1976 and 1983, several former kidnappers and torturers had been discovered among the ranks of the military and the police who had been tried and convicted like the Puccios. After the incarceration of all the members of the clan, the Argentinian legal system was able to get a conviction for the murders of Ricardo Manacuan, Emilio Nome, and Eduardo Olet. They are convinced that there are other bodies hidden somewhere. The diaries of the mother and her daughters were used as evidence by the police, but contained little information outside of what daily life was like as part of a criminal gang. The Puccio family were all seemingly model citizens and above suspicion. They had been able to get away with their crimes for so many years by trapping their prey by using kindness and trust. The mental hold that Buccio had over his family remains a genuine mystery. It remains unknown even today why his sons would have agreed to comply with his demands and turn themselves into absolute killing machines while they maintained social rich lives, attending universities, going to church, participating in sports and holding down jobs. According to the psychiatrist who interviewed the survivors of this family tragedy, the father was a true tyrant. He knew how to use emotional blackmail at the right time and just what buttons to push. It was clear that the whole family suffered a kind of group psychosis similar to that experienced from former cult members. To learn more about this new story from the Latin American Black Decade, the film El Clan, which was released in 2015, covers Puccio's story by placing it in its historical context. The film's release in Argentina broke all box office records for a locally produced film. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 